The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. He approached the house. The window was open. The moonbeams fell on Hannah, who was sleeping by it. Her head was supported on her arm. Her cheeks glowed. Her lips moved, gently murmuring his name. Sleep sweetly, my darling. Dream of everything that is good, and waking up will be even better. He made the sign of the cross over her, closed the window, and gently withdrew. In a few moments, the whole village was buried in slumber. Only the moon hung as brilliant and wonderful as before in the immensity of the Ukraine sky. The divine night continued her reign in solemn stillness, while the earth lay bathed in silvery radiance. The universal silence was only broken here and there by the bark of a dog. Only the drunken Kalenik still wandered about the empty streets, searching for his house. That is the end of the story, A May Night, an early story by Ukrainian author Nikolai Gogol. The immensity of the Ukraine sky, a divine night in solemn stillness, the earth lay bathed in silvery radiance. A dog barks. A different story today, of course, as of the moment of this recording. Our hearts are with the Ukrainians underneath that great sky. And while we watch and worry, we will take a brief look at one of their greatest literary ancestors, our old friend Gogol, who was born in Ukraine and first gained literary fame writing about his homeland and his fellow Ukrainians. We'll look at his description of the Knights of Ukraine, Knights in the 19th century, when vast and solemn stillness reigned. And speaking of knights, or knights with a K at least, we have a special treat for you today, a presentation of an episode of Book Dreams from our friends Eve and Julie and their interview of a scholar who made a surprising discovery in the world of Arthurian legend. Magic Knights and the Magic of Merlin. That's coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you're here today. Several of you have written to say that the Gettysburg Address episode that we did last time made you think about the war going on in Ukraine today and what the Ukrainians are fighting for. I was struck by that as well. It was coincidental when I put together that episode. I was still hoping there would not be a war. War is failure, in my view. It's somebody, a leader, a nation, someone has failed. Always, always. It's awful to see it happening anywhere. I'm not going to dwell on it here or dissect it because that's not my place. I'm not an expert, and that's not why you're here. You're here for literature. Maybe this is a place to get away from the news for a while. So let's just touch on some Ukrainian literature while, we're, while we are all focused on that part of the world. And even if you're listening to this months or years from now, it will still be relevant. For context, you might want to know that this episode comes in the middle of an invasion of Ukraine. Bombs are falling, missiles 
aircraft overhead. Ukraine is fighting back. There are no still and somber nights at the moment. Hopefully, those will return soon. As we said in the Gettysburg Address episode last time, in which President Lincoln coined the phrase, government of the people, by the people, for the people, our story in that episode was the degree of difficulty America faced, given its history and its commitment to a multicultural, immigration-based society. Democracy was a challenge, and is a challenge for sure, yet... The degree of difficulty in Ukraine is also very high. Let's hope they can pull it off too. And let's hope the suffering that comes along with war, the immeasurable fear and pain and death and grief and hunger and longing and everything else, let's hope for as good an outcome as possible, as soon as possible. I know there are downloads of this podcast in Ukraine and nearby. I can see they are still continuing. God bless all of you. Our hearts here in America and around the world are aching. Okay, let's do one of our countries. I thank you to a number one country. We're on a tour of sorts, thanking countries around the world who have pushed us to the top of the charts in their native land, according to Apple and Chartable. We've thanked nine countries so far, and we do have another one, number 10 on our list of countries to thank. Well, look at this. It's our friends in Finland. Finland. That NATO-adjacent country, not a member, but maybe it's time. I know there's some discussion of it. We will see. Finnish literature. My goodness. Finnish, the language, oh, the language of Finnish is hard as hell. One of the most difficult to learn for an outsider. There's a YouTube video that says, learn to speak Finnish in four minutes. What a joke. <laughs> maybe four years, or in my case, four lifetimes. Luckily. We have some translators and translations to help us communicate and enjoy. Finnic literature has an interesting origin. The earliest known text in any Finnic language was discovered in the 1950s when they found a fragment of sorts, a dozen or so words inscribed on birch bark. And it dates back to the early 1200s, 13th century. It has three lines. Some verse, God's arrow, it says, your name is ten. This arrow is God's own. The doom God leads. That's one translation anyway. It's thought to be a description of lightning and to be or be part of an invocation against lightning. When you live in a land with a lot of trees, I would imagine that sizzling lightning causing fires can be quite dramatic. Is the lightning a sign of the heavens? Maybe so. Heavenly anger, it would seem to be, wouldn't it? But maybe one can control it, guide it, implore the gods not to send it. A tantalizing fragment. Thank you to all of our friends in Finland. And may you stay safe and out of harm's way as well, whether that be from lightning of the natural variety or lightning of a more metaphoric and man-made sort. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with our look at the Ukrainian origins of Nikolai Gogol. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. 
Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Nikolai Gogol. We did an episode on Gogol that was all, all about me reading him and bursting into tears. That's how powerful he affects me. Although, keep in mind that I can be a bit odd, and sometimes things hit me the wrong way. What can I say? It's part of life, I suppose. Life is Jack Wilson. Gogol, Nabokov always cautions us to say goggle, but I, I can't bring myself to do it. Anyway, Gogol, goggle is commonly claimed as a Russian author, and that's sort of true. He spent much of his adult life in Russia when he wasn't traveling elsewhere, mostly Europe. Spent time in Rome and other places. He wrote the amazing novel, the masterpiece we call Dead Souls. And he wrote two seminal short stories, The Nose and The Overcoat, among several others. He's an early Russian or Ukrainian writer. By early, I mean he comes just after Pushkin, who was, in fact, a champion of Gogol's. And he comes just before the great prose writers Tolstoy and Turgenev and Dostoevsky, and well before Chekhov. His prose and his style were already in place, ready to influence those prose writers. His worldview, too. We all came out from under Gogol's overcoat, Dostoevsky was reported to have said. Gogol viewed the world with a measure of absurdity which he had experienced in his own life and which he injected into his fiction— the absurdity of authority, particularly of local functionaries, wielding power, people who are placed in absurd situations and asked to do things that make no sense, or for which they are strangely incapable. Bizarre things that happen to people. There's a story from Gogol's own life that seems absurd like this. He wound up in St. Petersburg at one point, working in a university, teaching medieval literature, and he had no idea what he was doing. He knew very little about the subject. How do you lecture? How do you commit to a series of lectures on a subject for which you aren't qualified? And how do you examine students who are studying in that field and who probably know as much, maybe even more than you do? Gogol's plan was this. First, he wrote down some generalizations about the subject and memorized them. That got him through one lecture. Then he skipped the second lecture, didn't show up for it at all. Then he turned up for the third one and muttered through his teeth so nobody could hear him. That got him through lecture number three, and then he skipped another one. That was number four. And then when it was time to interrogate the students at the examination, he showed up with a black handkerchief wrapped around his head, claimed he had a toothache, and couldn't speak. 
and let the other professor in the room ask all the questions. You could almost put that episode in one of Gogol's later stories. But why was he there in the first place? What was he doing with that job? He wasn't supposed to be a professor of medieval literature at St. Petersburg. That's not what he grew up thinking he would do. His expertise, in fact, was Ukrainian history. He was from Ukraine. He had studied Ukrainian history with a passion, and he'd written his early stories about Ukraine and Ukrainians, stories that made him famous in literary circles. Pushkin tried to help Gogol get the job at the University of Kiev. The Russian Minister of Education was in favor as well, and yet that position for Gogol was blocked by a bureaucrat within the university system. Low-level bureaucrat, Gogol had to leave to find work elsewhere, and his view of the world of bureaucracy as one of arbitrary decisions leading to absurd results took another step forward. His earliest stories have this air of absurdity about them, too. I think this was his view of the world since day one, in a sense. Nature is vast and wondrous. People are fickle and flawed and desperate to achieve things that are sometimes bizarrely impossible to achieve. Even the seemingly rational people are governed by superstition, odd coincidences, self-defeating gestures, and the whims of others. It's part of life in Russia, or in this case, Little Russia, as Gogol sometimes called Ukraine. We will just call it Ukraine, you and me. And let's look at one of the passages from his, from this earliest group of stories, which was entirely set in Ukraine, called Evenings on a Farm Near Dikanka. This was when he was viewed as a regional writer, a writer with insight into Ukrainian territory and culture and history and dialect and national character. And in this passage, which is quite a famous one, I've heard it quoted recently on Twitter by some Ukrainian soldiers who are welcoming slash taunting the Russians who are arriving, talking about the Ukrainian knights. This is Gogol. Quote, Do you know a Ukrainian knight? No, you do not know a knight in the Ukraine. Give it your full gaze. The moon shines in the midst of the sky. The immeasurable vault of heaven seems to have expanded to infinity. The earth is bathed in silver light. The air is warm, voluptuous, and redolent of innumerable sweet scents. Divine night. Magical night. Motionless, but inspired with divine breath, the forests stand, casting enormous shadows and wrapped in complete darkness. Calmly and placidly sleep the lakes surrounded by dark green thickets. The virginal groves of the hawthorns and cherry trees stretch their roots timidly into the cool water. Only now and then their leaves rustle unwillingly when that freebooter, the night wind, steals up to kiss them. The whole landscape is hushed in slumber, but there is a mysterious breath upon the heights. One falls into a weird and unearthly mood, and silvery apparitions rise from the depths. Divine night, magical night. Suddenly the woods, lakes, and steppes become alive. The nightingales of Ukraine are singing. 
and it seems as though the moon itself were listening to their song. The village sleeps as though under a magic spell. The cottages shine in the moonlight against the darkness of the woods behind them. The songs grow silent, and all is still. Only here and there is a glimmer of light in some small window. Some families, sitting up late, are finishing their supper at the thresholds of their houses. End quote. As with the opening passage I read at the start of this episode, I'm struck by the magical beauty of this Ukraine in the early 19th century. Gogol's Ukraine. It's a serenity full of mystery and wonder, divinity and magic. Let's hope for some serenity there soon for the landscape and, of course, the people. Okay. Speaking of divine magic and mystery and wonder, let's turn things over to our friends from Book Dreams, that excellent podcast. And they will be telling us all about some new developments in the world of Arthur and Merlin. That's coming up next after this. Hello and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider a story that's been captivating readers for almost a thousand years, the legend of Merlin and King Arthur. The idea for today's episode began with a mystery. In 2019, a librarian at Bristol's Public Library in England discovered scraps of parchment from a medieval manuscript pasted into the bindings of four Renaissance books. The fragments were written in Old French, but the librarian recognized the names Merlin and Arthur, and so he called in a local scholar to find out what was going on. It turns out that the scraps were part of a 13th century Arthurian legend manuscript written less than 50 years after the original King Arthur story that most of us are familiar with. What did the fragments say? How did they change our understanding of Merlin and King Arthur? And how did they make their way from France, where they were written, to a library in southwest England? A multidisciplinary team of scholars was able to answer these questions using a combination of brain power and cutting-edge technology. It is a fascinating story, and I had so much fun learning about it. Oh, me too. Our conversation with one of those scholars, Dr. Laura Chuhan Campbell, changed the way I think about Merlin and the story of King Arthur entirely. And it might change yours too, listeners. So just a word about Laura before we get started. She's an assistant professor in the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at Durham University and a member of the Institute of Medieval and Modern Studies. Her research interests cover medieval French and Italian literature, particularly the area of cultural adaptations of literary texts. Her first book, The Medieval Merlin Tradition in France and Italy, Prophecy, Paradox, and Translation, examines vernacular translations of the story of Merlin in French and Italian medieval literature. Now, she's one of three co-authors of The Bristol Merlin, Revealing the Secrets of a Medieval Fragment. 
We started by asking Laura to describe the fragments of manuscript and how they were discovered in Bristol's public library. Here's what she said. So my colleague Leah Tether is a professor of English at Bristol University. She got a call from the librarian, Michael Richardson, at the Central Library in Bristol. Um, he'd been looking through some old Renaissance books and looking at um, paste downs, which are basically fragments of old medieval manuscripts that were pasted onto the inside of Renaissance books. Medieval manuscripts were made of vellum, which is basically treated calfskin. They were essentially leather, the pages. So they were extremely durable and quite valuable material, even after they stopped being used as manuscripts. So as we see a gradual transition from manuscript culture to print culture between the 15th and 16th century, we start to see older manuscript pages, usually pages of books that were no longer in use and were just being used as waste material, um, bound into the front of these Renaissance books. The reason for that is Renaissance um, early printing paper was very fragile. They didn't use wood for it. They used a kind of pressed textile, which um, created this paper that was very, very fragile. Whereas the covers of the books were made of wood, so they were quite heavy, which is why they pasted down old bits of manuscript into the front to protect the paper. So in almost all Renaissance um, printed books, you find bits of manuscript, but they're often nothing particularly interesting. So you get bits of liturgical texts or accounts or, you know, material that has a shelf life. It's very unusual to find um, a vernacular text that is a text not written in Latin used as a paste down. And the librarian at Bristol Central Library found these, saw it was in French. He saw the names Arthur and Merlin in it and thought that this was potentially something interesting. So he got in touch with Professor Tether, who's a longtime collaborator of mine. We worked together a lot. And she was also at the time the president of the international British branch of the International Arthurian Society. So Professor Tether identified it as an Arthurian text, as eight pages from the Histoire de Merlin, the story of Merlin. And she got in touch with me and we identified the text further. And we decided to work also with Dr. Benjamin Pohl, who's a book historian, um, to translate and edit these fragments, as well as to tell the story of the fragments, not just as a piece of text, but also as a physical object, to trace how it got from a bookshop in um, 13th century France, all the way to being a paste down in a Renaissance book in Bristol Central Library. And what was it like for you the first time you saw and touched these documents? It was really, really exciting. I mean, I know as a medievalist, I get to look at manuscripts quite a lot. Not as much as I'd like. A lot of it's online nowadays, but um, it's always really, really exciting and really special to see them in real life. It's especially special to see one that we assume hasn't seen the light of day in over 100 years. Mm. We have a record from 1899 where the book was catalogued and recorded as having a French you know, a French manuscript at the front, but clearly the person who was doing that didn't really see any interest in it. So, yes, yeah, something no one's looked at for 100 years, something, you know, that had possibly been sat there unnoticed for even longer than that. It was so exciting. And I just love working with manuscripts. They're just such fascinating objects. How important is this discovery? Does it change anything about how we think about Merlin and the Arthurian legends? 
So the actual text doesn't tell us a great deal. There's a very minor detail which is different to other manuscripts. I mean, just to give a little bit of context, medieval manuscripts, as you can imagine, were copied by hand before the invention of the printing press. But each manuscript was copied with ever so slightly minor differences a lot of the time. Um, there was no such thing as copyright. Scribes were under no real particular obligation to copy the text exactly as they saw it. Some did. Some copied it with perfect accuracy. Some of them changed things. They made mistakes. Some of them even edited it and made deliberate interventions. So every medieval manuscript that we have is ever so slightly different. Mm-hmm. This text, we have two separate redactions. This one is part of the shorter redaction. It doesn't necessarily give us many new details about the story other than a slightly cleaned up version of um, Merlin's interaction with his lover, Vivienne, um, where a sexual reference to her um, writing a magic spell on her groin is um, changed to her writing a magic spell on on a ring. So the groin, obvious (laughs) reference for genitals, right? Right. And so much more fun, the groin, than the ring. So much more interesting. <laughs> we we don't know. I mean, it might be because the word for groin in Old French, in, spell A-I-N-E-S, is not too dissimilar from the word for ring, anel, A-N-E-L. So it might have been a mistake somewhere. You know, sometimes these things are copied by human beings, right? So they, they make mistakes all the time. Or it might be some prudish scribe who's like, well, I'm not writing down anything to do with women's genitals and, right. and changed it to ring instead. So that's the only real difference we have in the text. What's really interesting is it tells us about the history of who was reading this text and how it was transported um, from France to England. Can you tell us the story of how you and your colleagues were able to track their path from France to a library in Bristol? So we, because we've all got different specializations, we all worked with the manuscript in different ways. Personally, my work was working on the transcription and the edition of the manuscript. The manuscript is um, very, very heavily damaged, unfortunately, because it was pasted down into the front of a book. Mm-hmm. You know, the page was pasted down, we think, in the 19th century. Someone unpasted it when they were cataloguing it and changing the um, the spine of the book, so for conservation work. And that pulled away quite a lot of the ink. So it was my job to reconstruct the text, essentially, using what I could see from the text, um, using also a control manuscript. As I said before, all the manuscripts are different, but we do get distinct families of manuscript that have very similar redactions. So I had to link it up to a specific group of manuscripts, find a control manuscript, so one that had the closest text. And then in the bits of the text that I was completely unable to, and of course I did this with Leia as well, we would both puzzle over half-formed words Mm. and, you know, kind of like damaged sections. That was fun and frustrating in equal measure. Sure. (laughs) Um, So it was my job to kind of insert the text from another manuscript in bits where the text was completely irretrievable. We also um, worked with Professor Andy Beebe at Durham University, who has created this multispectral imaging machine for reading manuscripts. And what that does is it's able to see the... um, I'm not exactly sure how the machine works, but it it can take (laughs) photos. (laughs) It's not my area, but it can take photos that show 
more of the trace the ink would have left than you can see with the naked eye. So that was really helpful as well, because sometimes you only need just that little bit of an edge of a, a letter and it reveals the whole word to you. While I was doing that, and I also translated the text as well, Dr. Pohl was going through looking at the handwriting and dating the handwriting, looking at the ink, looking at the physical book itself and what it, it could tell us about the date and the way it was used, about the marginal annotations. Um, at the same time, Professor Tether was looking at the history of the book. So she was using kind of annotations on the cover to find out about who the owners had been, where it had possibly been bound how it had ended up in Bristol Central Library. So we were all looking at the manuscript from different perspectives. It's amazing to me how quickly all of this came together and how many people had to collaborate to get it done. The fragments were discovered only two years before the book about them was published, and Laura said that analyzing them required scholars with knowledge of history, book history, bibliography, paleography and codicology, literary studies, philology, and translation studies, not to mention that fancy spectroscope. Yeah, it is incredible. I love the story, too, about how they figured out how the pages got from France to England. It was all based on one tiny bit of marginalia. Someone wrote, my God, in English in one of the margins. Based on the handwriting, experts dated that to the early 14th century, which means the fragments made it to England within 80 years of being written. Laura said that one little comment, my God, may have been a little nothing, handwriting practice or just the scribe testing his quill to see if it was sharp. It's amazing. And the puzzle aspect of this story is half the fun, for me at least. Finding those tiny clues and seeing how they fit, it reminds me a lot of A.S. Byatt's book, Possession, which is one of my all-time favorite books. Oh my gosh, that book is one of the ones that has been on my, Julie, you have to read this list <gasps> for so long. And I, I just never have. Oh my, that's, you have to, you would love, love, love that book. If you're about to ask me whether they made it into a movie with Gwyneth Paltrow, the answer is yes, but the movie sucks and the book is great. That was not what I was going to ask you, but that is good to know. I was going to ask you, isn't A.S. Byatt the sister of Margaret Drabble, and didn't they hate each other? I have no idea. This is the first I've heard of that. Yes. A.S. Byatt is sisters with Margaret Drabble, and they're both brilliant. And I really like Margaret Drabble. <laughs> and I'm just <laughs> looking at, the, there's a Slate article that's uh, titled, A Narrative of Jealousy and Bafflement and Resentment. Two Ooh. gifted sisters, a domineering mother, and one of the greatest literary feuds of English lit. I think I may sense a future Book Dreams <laughs> episode. <laughs> oh, what a great idea. But I, I had read Margaret Drabble first. <laughs> so mm. I had, so you had this sense of loyalty, like exactly. you can't read. Oh, I can't right. like A.S. Buy It. Yeah, you can. The book is so good. <laughs> it's so right. good. Yeah. Well, I'll give it a chance. Okay. Well, the other half of the fun for me was learning more about the original King Arthur stories just in general and how different they are from the versions we know. We started by asking Laura why she thought those stories have never lost their appeal to readers. And here's what she said. So the story of King Arthur, it was initially incredibly popular in the Middle Ages. We get 
the first stories about Arthur emerging in writing in Latin in the mid 12th century um, from Geoffrey of Monmouth, although they've quite possibly had earlier oral precedents that obviously we no longer have evidence of. Um, they, you know, there was a, a huge amount of productivity in Arthurian stories um, in the 13th century. And then they continued to be popular really up until their revival in the 19th century, the sort of revival of, of interest in the Middle Ages and medieval culture and art and literature really created a, a new vision of King Arthur. So often our, our modern depictions are based more on, on Tennyson and 19th century imagery than the original medieval texts. I think it's endured because um, on the one hand, it's a national myth. In the Middle Ages, that wasn't necessarily the case because there was no such thing as nations, really. Kingdoms, medieval kingdoms didn't quite have the same um, sense of identity as they do now. But when it was revived in the 19th century, it was brought back as a kind of British national myth. Um, Arthur is a British national hero, which is why a lot of people are very surprised, actually, when you tell them that the original stories were all, you know, mostly written down in French. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, I think our, our fascination with the Middle Ages continues nowadays and Arthur and the Arthurian story is very emblematic of that. For us, it really encapsulates the stereotype of the Middle Ages. It's got knights and ladies and queens and dragons and witches and all those sorts of things that, you know, fit our stereotype of the Middle Ages. And also, they're, you know, they're great stories. They're fun. Yeah. Who doesn't want to be the weakling who pulls the sword out of the stone? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, has a best friend who's magical. So you can probably tell from what I'm saying that Julie and I don't know, we don't know a huge amount about the Arthurian legends. You know, I think we've both read the Mary Stewart books. We've read Once in Future King. I think I've seen the Disney movie, you know, that kind of a thing. But the more I was researching the origins of these stories and the early versions, the more I excited I got about our conversation. So I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit more about the origins of these stories. You mentioned Geoffrey of Monmouth, um, and there's also Robert de Bourgogne. Yep. Tell us a little more about their work and how it gave rise to the stories we know now. Before Geoffrey of Monmouth, we only have very fragmentary references to a warlord called Arthur. We have some Welsh poems that clearly come from an oral tradition that also reference the figure of Merlin. But these weren't initially you know, related in any way. These were clearly separate stories. It was Geoffrey of Monmouth who brought them together and who really brought the Arthurian story into the history of Britain. So Geoffrey wrote a Latin chronicle um, in the 1130s. And this Latin chronicle basically went through all the kings of Britain, one of whom was Arthur. Merlin appears before the birth of Arthur as this sort of strange child who can see the future, <laughs> um, who is apparently the son of a devil. So the Geoffrey of Monmouth story was translated into Anglo-Norman by Robert Was. And at the same time in the 1100s as well, we start to see French stories, um, you know, French songs and French poems emerging around the Knights of King Arthur. So this is where we see the emergence of um, figures like Gawain 
Lancelot, we see the story of Percival, mm-hmm. and the story of Merlin. Um, first got really developed by Robert de Beuron in the early 13th century, we think around 1200 or so. Um, Possibly Robert de Beuron, the the authorship is disputed. And he tells the story of the Holy Grail. He takes it from the story of Percival and develops a backstory for the Grail, which starts at Christ's crucifixion. The Grail is the, the cup that is used to collect Christ's blood. And then the Grail gets transported to Britain. And then in the next branch of it, Merlin is born as, um, he's initially an antichrist. He's the son of a devil. Mm-hmm. But God saves his soul and tries to redeem him by giving him the gift of prophecy. And his job then, Merlin, who is, you know, he's omniscient, his job is to make sure that the Arthurian knights find the Holy Grail. You know, I think along the lines of Vivian being way more interesting printing on her groin instead of on her ring, mm-hmm. original Merlin, this Antichrist or the son of a devil, so much more fun. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, know. he was fun. And didn't you call him a creepy little boy in an interview somewhere? <laughs> I did. Yeah, he is a creepy little boy. So when he's born, he's precociously, well, I mean, he's magical because his father is a devil and God has given him the gift of prophecy. So he has these magic powers that are consistent with what people thought devils could do in the Middle Ages. They knew everything in the past and present, but not the future. That's the domain of God. But of course, Merlin has that additional power. They can manipulate nature. They can summon other devils. So Merlin, when he's born, is able to speak immediately as a a tiny baby. So convenient. I know, right? Well, he actually goes on to defend his mother in court because she's um, she's been put into prison because she's had a baby out of wedlock, which the story tells us was illegal at the time. Not in real life, but in, in the fictional world. So she's in prison. She gives birth to Merlin, who can immediately talk, and he defends her in court and gets her successfully acquitted. But of course, he can change shape. So he never really is one particular shape for very long. He can transform into an old man or people of any age, people of any status, which is interesting as well. It's so interesting. I think we need to bring back more of the original qualities of Merlin into current (laughs) current versions. (laughs) So I actually have a teeny tiny sliver of understanding of early modern demonic texts. Um, My son is currently spending the year translating a late 16th century exorcism text, Italian exorcism oh, wow. text. Yeah, yeah, super fun. So I have just enough of an understanding to know that these demonic texts were more than just religious texts. They also served as vehicles used by the church to advance a political agenda. Do you think that was the case with the Merlin story? It certainly was in Italy. In the French Merlin stories, oh, and in England as well, of course, I'm forgetting about Geoffrey of Monmouth. So in the Geoffrey of Monmouth story where, um, so of course, you know, the story of um, King Arthur was meant to have been in the fifth century. So he starts then doing prophecies about, you know, present Anglo-Norman Britain in which Geoffrey of Monmouth was writing. And these prophecies are very political. So it's this interesting technique of backdating prophecy by rooting it in a fictional past. But of course, when you move that into a political context, it means that criticism or political angles can certainly be interpreted in one way, but not in such an obvious way that they can leave the author open to criticism as well. And this was taken on especially in medieval Italy. So 
the translations, they insert a lot of prophecies by Merlin, which are talking about the conflict between the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope. There's a lot of criticism of the papacy, of the ecclesiastical establishment, all of these in kind of obscure symbols that can be interpreted just clearly enough to make the criticism clear. We've been talking about how medieval and earlier versions of the Arthurian legend reflect the political realities of their times and and cultural aspects of their times. What do you think modern versions of the story reflect about our times? Oh, interesting. I would say, as I kind of mentioned before, it it ties into stories of obscure origins, of of great figures coming from obscure origins, Mm. which is something that, you know, was a very common narrative in the Middle Ages, but we still have it today. So we see it with Harry Potter. We see it with Luke Skywalker. It's a very pervasive myth that's survived to the present day. We also have the you know tragic stories like um, Lancelot and Guinevere and Tristan and Isolde, the whole kind of star-crossed lovers story. We still have stories like that to this day. Yeah, it's interesting to me that over time we've lost a lot of the juicier details. Yeah, well, as I mentioned before, the 19th century versions that a lot of our modern narratives are based on are very sanitized. The original Arthurian stories are way more violent. There's way more sex than you would have thought. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably what made them so popular, you know? Yeah. Do you have any modern versions of the legend that you particularly like? I enjoyed Bernard Cornwell's version because he he obviously does, you know, a lot of historical research. He sets the story in kind of 5th century Britain, so it bypasses a lot of the um, the sort of 19th century medievalism of it. He uses a lot of characters from the original texts, like Welsh folklore and stuff. I can't remember what the trilogy is called, but the, the first one is called The Winter King. And then if people wanted to read an early version with all the unsanitized bits, are there ways to do that for, for non-academic people? Yeah, there's um, loads of great translations out there. I would start with either Marie de France or Chrétien de Troyes. With Chrétien de Troyes, I would recommend Yvan and the Knight of the Lion, which is a great story about a knight who has a pet lion. Who doesn't want to read that? Oh, yeah. Perceval is a really good one as well. And also Lancelot and what was the other one? Eric and Enid is also quite good. So these are these, they've got a lot of action. They've got all the typical elements of medieval literature, but they're quite, I would say they're pretty engaging for modern readers. Um, and also Marie de France is, is great as well. Something like Guichemar is a great story. I also like uh, L'Enval. Marie de France's are more, um, they engage more with the sort of supernatural Breton folklore. So you have things like knights transforming into birds. You get more kind of dragons and fairies. So yeah, I would, I would recommend Chrétien de Troyes and uh, Marie de France. We'll link to all of these books in the show notes, of course. But Julie, I think you and I may need to plan for a wet, hot summer of Merlin and King Arthur. I really cannot wait. When I was a kid, I went through a phase of reading modern versions of the Merlin and King Arthur stories. I couldn't get enough of them, but I had never even heard of the series by Bernard Cornwell. So obviously I left that world too far behind. I'm so excited to revisit that feeling of enchantment. 
and who doesn't need more enchantment in their lives? I certainly (laughs) do. And I loved learning more about a story I've known all my life. I mean, who knew Merlin was an antichrist? I didn't. No. Right. I didn't either. It's the best, right? (laughs) And the other thing Laura told us about Merlin is that according to Geoffrey of Monmouth, he's responsible for Stonehenge. He created the stones and he ordered a bunch of giants to transport them from Ireland so they could stand in their current location in Salisbury as a war memorial. He was always my favorite Arthurian legend character. So now I love him twice as much. Yes, me too. I'm already dying to know more about Vivian too, the Lady of the Lake. Can you imagine what we might find out about Guinevere? In the words of a 14th century scribe, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Laura on Twitter at C-A-M-B-I-E-C-H-O-O. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Okay, that's going to do it for this special episode of the History of Literature. Another HOL Presents episode. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Gogol and to Eve and Julie. Please do check their podcast out. It's called Book Dreams. It's one of the podglomerate podcasts. It is available wherever you get your podcasts, including this one. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.